Hello, this is Miss Babin, and this is podcast number 10, and it is for Louisiana history. And this podcast is about Louisiana statehood. Well, before Louisiana became a state, we want to talk about some of the changes that Louisiana experienced once it became a U.S. territory. Louisiana is going to change economically, it's going to, and it's going to change socially. And so we're going to talk about some of the things that uh, changed under those two categories. In terms of economically, Louisiana will change three ways economically that are very, very important. Three of the causes for the change is going to be an increase in the population, the increase in commerce and trade, and thirdly, the stronger institution of banking in Louisiana. Well, first, let's talk about population. Once Louisiana became a territory, Americans started to flood in to the new territory. Americans were known for wanting to move into areas to get established and to get an opportunity for their own land and property. Remember, we're still living in a time where the accumulation of land is viewed as the accumulation of wealth and independence. And so a lot, that is just what the Americans are known for. So people from the West and from the South, particularly, moved into Louisiana. Another group that comes into Louisiana are going to be immigrants from Santo Domingue, what is now Haiti as a result of that um, revolt that we talked about when we discussed the Louisiana Purchase. So what you have is in Louisiana is a large uh, increase in the population. And once that happens, that's going to change your society. Because now in Louisiana, you have Americans, you have the French, which are still the majority, you have, and you have the Spanish. So you have those Creoles living in Louisiana. You have some free people of color who are living in Louisiana, who make their own segment of society. And now you have these other groups coming in. And Louisiana takes a while for all of these to meld and to blend and to come to understand each other. But because of this change in growth and population, it's going to change the economy. Louisiana, because these people are coming in and working, they're going to start to really acquire wealth. And that is going to improve Louisiana's status uh, within itself and among the United States. Another reason the economy changes is because there is going to be an establishment of commerce and, tr and trade and shipping. Now that there is no problems with rights of deposit, there is free trade and travel up and down the entire length of the Mississippi River. So areas throughout the United States, especially those into the West, they're going to be shipping goods up and down the Mississippi River for purposes of sale and for things to purchase. There's going to be trade in and out of Texas. There's going to be trade in and out of Europe. So it just booms the trade business in Louisiana. And along with that comes the commerce, the various businesses that support this. So businesses that are going to support um, the repair of ships, the building of ships, the storage of goods, the shipping of goods, the sale, all of these things, all of these businesses start just booming in the area of the lower Mississippi River. And that's going to be New Orleans. It's going to affect Baton Rouge. It's going to affect Natchez. 
uh, even Natchitoches, all of those areas are going to be affected. And the third impact economically is the banking. This was the hardest thing to get established, and Claiborne knew it needed to happen. Claiborne realized that there just weren't a lot of banks in this new territory, and banking is a necessity if your economy is going to grow so that people can borrow money and and so that investments can be made in businesses. And this was the hardest thing for Claiborne to get started economically because the people simply did not trust banks. Because remember, as we spoke about earlier, earlier in the year, the banks did not have any kind of insurance that protected people's deposits. And so people were very leery. They were very nervous of banking. And it took a while for Claiborne to get this established. But eventually, there were about four or five large banks that were centered, of course, in New Orleans, but they became a hub of financial business in that area of the United States. And it made a big difference because there was the ability to invest money. So we see the three changes in the economy, the increase in the population, the increase of commerce and trade, and banking. And that is going to make a huge change in Louisiana because for the very first time, they become profitable. People start to acquire wealth, real wealth, independently, and they require it and and rather acquire it collectively as a region and as a territory and later as a state. Another thing that changes in Louisiana is how the society is structured. Remember, with the influx of Americans, you're going to start to see changes. And so there is this slow melding of these various cultures that make Louisiana very much what it is. But what emerges in Louisiana are three basic levels of society. And three, these three basic levels of society will stay in place strongly until after the Civil War. The first of these, and probably one of the most widespread initially, is what we call subsistence farming. Subsistence farming is where people own their own land, often very small farms, and they will grow a small crop to sell. But the bulk of their work is going to be to provide for their family's immediate needs. So they're going to be growing and cultivating things that they will use to eat and to survive. And they may grow a small crop of indigo, a small crop of tobacco, a small crop of cotton that they will then sell to get some cash. But the bulk of their living is to make it day in and day out, year in and year out. And this is really going to be a wide range of family-owned farms in Louisiana, more so in North Louisiana than in South Louisiana as it becomes a state. The second level of society are going to be those people that we call staple farmers. These are, again, family-owned farms. They're going to be larger than the subsistence farms. But also in this group are going to be the planters. And these are the people who are going to primarily grow those staple crops. And remember, a staple crop is going to be the crop like cotton, sugarcane, indigo, tobacco, later rice. 
those crops that are grown for the purpose of selling. And yes, they will have their vegetable gardens and their livestock that they will use to feed their families and those working on their farm or on their plantation. But their focus is growing something to sell. And these are going to be the people who are going to be heavily involved in the shipping and in commerce. These are going to be the people who are particularly the planters who are going to be the slave owners. And remember, they will be a minority of the population. But as we're going to see, that minority is going to become politically very powerful. The third level of society are going to be this town and city dwellers. And again, these are going to be small business owners or people who own a bank. And so in a town or and a city, you're going to see all levels of economics. And so you're going to be the people who work in someone's household and someone who may own a business, um, a middle-class business, and then someone who may own, be involved in uh, owning shipping companies. So there's the whole range within a town or a city. And the people in the towns and the cities had different attitudes than the people who lived out in the countryside. But those people who live out in the countryside are going to be the majority of the population, at least initially. So we have these three levels, subsistence farmers. The second is staple farmers and planters, and then those who live in the city. A third area of change in Louisiana is going to be seen in education. And you have to understand that it has always been a part of American society that there be a type of public education. And this started back with, you know, the people, the pilgrims getting off the boat. They believed that there needed to be schools established to teach their children how to read and how to write and how to do arithmetic. And that it was society's responsibility to provide this. And even as the United States, before the Constitution was written, the United States from its very inception as a country, they, they had a plan for how schools needed to be established. And when there were a certain number of people living in a region, they needed to have a school there to educate the children. So when Claiborne comes into Louisiana, into this French, Spanish, very European background, he brings with him this attitude that there needs to be schools established for the education of the public. And really, much of Louisiana was illiterate when he came in. So there was a need. Well, he wants to establish these public schools and the people do not agree. And this again goes back to that French and Spanish background. It's not that people were opposed to education, but it is that they believed that it was the family's responsibility to do it and that it should be done in coordination with the church, that the, that the church should help to provide schools for the children. The Catholic Church was willing to educate anybody that came to them, but they felt the people needed to come to them. So what you have is this tension between Claiborne and the people who are saying, we don't think we should have to build public schools because we have a mechanism in place. And here's Claiborne saying, but you need the schools because the people need to be educated. This is one of the things that he's not particularly successful at. Uh, really, by the time uh, Louisiana becomes a state, he's only managed to establish six public schools 
in all of the territory of Orleans that becomes Louisiana the state. And today we still see the the importance of faith-based education here. So those are three areas societally that change. And we see the establishment of those three levels of society and a move towards establishing public education that takes a long time in getting established in Louisiana. So how does Louisiana become a state? Well, they had to take a couple of tries at it, to be honest. Uh, Louisiana had some difficulties establishing itself and moving into that American way of life and that American way of government. At first, a lot of people did not like Claiborne at all. He was very American and he did not speak French. And that, of course, made things difficult. And the people resented that. He was also 28 years old when he came to Louisiana. So while he was an experienced governor, and he was an experienced governor, he was still pretty young when he took on this role. And the people were resistant. They did not trust him at first, and they did not trust this idea of local government. Remember, they they came from a monarchy that at best had indirect representation, but now it's direct representation. And the people wanted to grab hold of it and do it their way, and not necessarily the way that was established by the U.S. government. So there was always tension there. And a lot of times when Claiborne would ask people to help establish a local government, they said no. So it took him a while to get that started. And then once the local government were started, they could form a territorial legislature and write the laws. And that was a struggle too. Every law, every ordinance had to be compromised between how the Creoles wanted to do it and how the Americans wanted to do it. And Claiborne really had a gift for bringing groups together and negotiating with them. That was probably his greatest gift. And he had to, but he had to go through every single thing that they did was a point of discussion and a point of compromise. Nothing was ever accepted the first time. So it took a long time. So, and a, a great example of this and how he earned their trust was when they were writing laws for the colony. Claiborne was smart enough to bring things in gradually, but he was also smart to go back and look at laws that went all the way back to Bienville. And if there was a French law from Bienville that worked with the Constitution, he kept it. If there was a law from the Spanish, particularly from Corondelet, that worked with the Constitution, he kept it. If there was a he, so he, you have in Louisiana's laws, laws from the French colonial period, the Spanish colonial period, the British because of West Florida, from the Napoleonic Code. As long as they worked with the Constitution, Claiborne kept them in because he knew that people understood these laws and it built trust. Some of these laws are still used in Louisiana today, and it actually makes Louisiana one of the more complicated states in the United States to practice law. But it goes back to this time and this understanding that it was a reflection of the people. When it came time for Louisiana to become a state, the movement for it was pushed by a man named Julian Poydras. Uh, When you go to 
New Orleans, one of the first exits off the interstate is Poydras Street, and it's named for him. Julian Poydras was an organizer of Louisiana's statehood movement. He was actually chosen to represent Louisiana uh, or the territory of Orleans, as it was called then, in Congress. Uh, When a territory reaches a certain stage, they can have one congressional representative. And he was our person. He does not have full voting rights, but he can represent the, the territory's interest. So he is the person who's going to actually lead this. And in 1810, the census showed that Louisiana had a population of 60,000 people that were eligible to vote. And when a territory has 60,000 eligible voters, that means they can apply for statehood. And so he pushed this forward. Claiborne did not think Louisiana was ready for this in 1810. And he actually wrote a letter to Congress saying they need a little more time. But uh, others in Louisiana pushed forward. And at first, Congress disagreed. They disagreed with it because of the the proposition that Louisiana put forward, what their constitution was going to look like. And they said, no, you just can't have that. So they went back to the drawing board and tried again in 1811. And in 1811, uh, President uh, Monroe said yes, and he signed a bill allowing Louisiana to apply for statehood. And so this is where it's going to start. In 1812, uh, Julian Poydras helps uh, and is the leader of the Constitutional Convention. They actually met in New Orleans on Royal Street in a place called Tremolette's Coffee House. So Louisiana's first constitution in 1812 was written in a coffee house. If you remember, it's on our map of New Orleans, and it's one of those areas that I told you it's no longer there, but the spot is preserved, and it is where the first constitution was written. The coffee house is gone. Interestingly enough, when they assembled to write the constitution, guess what was going on in New Orleans? A yellow fever epidemic. And it was so dangerous that everybody had to go home and they had to stay home for a couple of months before it was safe enough to gather in a group and write the Constitution. But the Louisiana Constitution is written and it is approved by Congress and they become a state on April 14, 1812. Now, if you read this Constitution today, you would say it is not the most democratic of constitutions in terms of our standards that we live by today. But remember, there have been amendments added to the U.S. Constitution that changed a lot of things. The Constitution of 1812 did two things. Number one, it complemented and coincided with the U.S. Constitution. Every state's constitution must complement and coincide with the U.S. Constitution. What that means is, The state constitutions, Louisiana, Texas, Oklahoma, they cannot have anything in their state constitution that contradicts the U.S. Constitution. So the Constitution of 1812 does that. And it reflects the standards of the day. They use the Constitution of Kentucky as a model to build the Louisiana Constitution upon.
So why do I say it's not very democratic? Well, among other things, let's look who could run for office. If a person was going to run for office, they had to meet age requirements, but they also had to be male, they had to be white, and they had to be a landowner. That was three requirements. To vote, you had to be male, you had to be white, you had to pay taxes, you had to be 21, you had had to have lived in Louisiana for a year. So again, there's these really strict limitations. And so there was not universal voter rights for people. But eventually, of course, we're going to see that change. But if you looked at it, a lot of people say, well, that's not very fair. But it is the world in which they lived, and it was common across the United States at the time. They, Louisiana does become the 18th state. They decide to go back and name Louisiana after its original colonial name. We enter the Union, and six weeks later, the War of 1812 is declared. And that is going to certainly affect Louisiana, but it's also going to affect the entire United States.